Hello, and welcome to The Food Podcast, a show where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Actually, this episode is really where personal stories are shared through the lens of a television. It all started when the acclaimed English-Irish-American actor Angela Lansbury died in early October at the age of 96. I wrote about her iconic style and grace as the character Jessica Fletcher in the long-running television show Murder, she wrote in my newsletter a few weeks ago. For the most part, the feedback was positive. People were equally nostalgic about Jessica, her always appropriate wardrobe, her soft caramel hair, and persistent questioning that left us feeling comforted with the knowledge that this suave yet down-to-earth older woman would solve the murder every time. But the newsletter drew out criticism, too. It always happens when wholesome things are celebrated. It's the story of my life, really. I grew up with three sisters. We were basically little women, minus Beth's death. And if I were Joe, my younger sister would never burn a manuscript I had lovingly worked on for several years. My mother is even called Marmy by her grandchildren. (laughs) Yeah, I may have worked at a tavern way back when... And my friends were, are sometimes edgy. And I was even a chef. But at the end of the day, I am just like my family. We like cozy, comfortable things. So this episode is all about finding out what gives you comfort and leaning into it. I'll talk with teacher, blogger, baker, soap maker, beekeeper, and photographer Sherry Graham, who might possibly be the top Murder, She Wrote fan of all time. It's a mystery how white-fleshed, bumpy, gnarly, yellowy-green skin quince can transform into a rich, burnished red jelly. The flesh itself is bitter and astringent. You know the way red wine can feel textured in the mouth, almost rough? That's all from the tannins in the wine and in quince. After a little research, I've gleaned that tannins bond to proteins in our saliva. Saliva is there to help food particles slide smoothly in our mouths. But when tannins are present, the proteins clump together and stick to the surfaces in the mouth, creating friction. That's the tactile, rough feeling I was talking about. And tannins make quince taste bad. So in order to make quince edible, the tannins need to be destroyed. This is done by cooking them down, 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 until the hard, tannic, astringent fruit has softened into a delicate, flowery, aromatic miracle. But how does the flesh turn red? The clusters of tannins in the fruit are made up of pigments called anthocyanins. When you heat tannins, anthocyanins are released. Anthocyanins is from the Greek antho, meaning flower, and cyan for blue. They color most of the red, blue, and purple colors of plants, like tomatoes and strawberries and cabbage. 
But when they are exposed to an acidic environment like lemon juice, the tannins unravel and the fruit turns red and anthocyanins are released until you have a softened, delicate, flowery, aromatic, red miracle. The whole scene makes me think of Mary Pratt. Mary Pratt is a Canadian painter who is best known in her early years for capturing the domestic world around her. A glass bowl filled with fruit, sharp shadows and light slashing through the scene, filleted raw salmon on the counter, dinner wrapped in crinkled reflective tinfoil, and her most famous iridescent jars of jelly on the counter refracting the kitchen light. Pratt took photos of scenes that lit her up, and later, in the quiet of the evening, she'd project her photos on the wall, then paint. She was married to artist Christopher Pratt. It's been said her work captured the domestic because she was at home with the children while Christopher was out in the world painting. Was she stuck at home, trapped? I don't know. But in an interview with the National Gallery of Canada in 2016, she says she painted something in her viewplane when she found it erotically necessary to have that image forever. And I hoped that I could bring that erotic charge to the paintings. It was a love affair with, with vision, a real love affair with vision. Women have been encouraged to embrace domesticity forever. In a recent episode of the We Can Do Hard Things podcast with Glennon Doyle and her co-host and sister Amanda Doyle, they wrestle with this idea. They are talking with the writer Celeste Ng, specifically about how Ng uses the Betty Crocker cookbook in one of her novels, a cookbook that was meant to be handed down from mother to daughter to tell generations of women what to want. Amanda says, is there any satisfaction more intense than looking at a set of jellies and preserves you made yourself? Then they laughed. I could hear their eyes rolling because they don't find comfort in that kind of stuff. Do I find comfort in something because I've been told to? Did Mary Pratt find erotic charges because that was her lot in life? I don't think so. I hope not. There's a freedom in getting to choose what lights you up. I haven't been forced into the kitchen. I'm not preserving food in order to survive. I don't take that for granted. I'm here because like Mary Pratt, I'm having a love affair with vision. The peeled and cored quince have softened into a rich orangey red. There's orange and lemon peel in the pot, and sugar, ginger for spice, and a vanilla bean. My friend is visiting from Toronto, and she's wearing a jumpsuit the color of cooked quince. I spoon the quince. Is it butter? Is it sauce? Anyway, I spoon it onto a scone, and the next day I eat it with yogurt and then oatmeal. It was a pop of color and flavor that I wanted to have forever. And you want to know who else is in love with what she loves? Sherry Graham. I'm Sherry Graham. I am a teacher of students with visual impairments. That's my day job. And I live in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. I love all things home, gardening, baking, cooking. I have chickens, bees, 
all those sorts of things. And another love of my life is Murder, She Wrote and Jessica Fletcher, (laughs) which is something I'm often embarrassed to say, and nobody ever asks me to talk about this. So (laughs) I don't know how excited I'm going to get, but I'm going to try to keep it under control. (laughs) When Angela Lansbury died, I reached out to Sherry. She's a colleague and friend of my sister's. I knew she loved Murder, She Wrote, and I wanted to share my condolences. Then I asked her why she loved the show so much. What made it special? Sherry wrote back with these words right away. Murder, She Wrote is the epitome of a comforting show to rewatch. The sets are uh, in the 80s and 90s. They're full of florals and clutter. The early episodes are set in a time before cell phones and laptops, which is especially comforting and pleasantly nostalgic to people my age. So it really takes you back to that time when if you're there with the people in the room, you are just there with the people in the room. (laughs) There's no other distractions unless that avocado colored phone rings um, and somebody has to go up and answer it. And I think that's because it is so similar to here where I grew up too. Like it's that sort of thing. Oh, the neighbor pops by or you're going to drop this thing off because somebody dies. You're taking a casserole over or it just that part of it just felt very, very familiar. The 12-season show was filmed between 1984 and 1996, but Sherry didn't start watching until much later, 12 to 14 years later, when it could be streamed and binged online. Eventually, she bought the DVD box set. The show is like so many things that get better with age. And I think it was when I was making a lot of soap. I had a small business selling soap. And so it's very tedious when you have to cut the soap and dry the soap and wrap the soap and all those sorts of things. It's just tedious, repetitive work. So I would always put something on to watch in the background. I think it must have been that I had it on the laptop on the dining room table, wrapping soap, wrapping soap. And once I finished the whole series, 268 episodes, I just started all over again. (laughs) So honestly, I am not even sure how many times I've seen the entire series through probably only maybe three or four tops, but the Cabot Cove episodes are on frequent repeat. <laughs> Just this very comforting kind of background company. Cabot Cove is a fictional seaside town in Maine where Jessica Fletcher lives. It's really Mendocino, California, pretending to be a fishing town. So the grass is dry and the Pacific Ocean isn't quite the Atlantic But Sherry doesn't mind. Sherry is from the town of Yarmouth on the southwestern tip of Nova Scotia, not far from Maine. Yarmouth was a shipbuilding port. Today, lobster fishing is one of the main industries in the area. She finds it also familiar. I ask if neighbors drop by her house like they do at Jessica's house in Cabot Cove. Oh, do they ever? (laughs) Yeah, they do. They do. And actually, I find it's less now than when I was a kid, because it used to be, well, if you couldn't just text somebody or whatever, then you would just pop over, get the news, have tea, visit on a Sunday afternoon. Um, And it does still happen here, but I don't think it's quite the same. And I was thinking about this because the community that I grew up in is Sanford, which is just outside of Yarmouth. And it used to be that I was related to almost everybody who lived around there. And that's where my dad was. He grew up, was born there. My aunts and uncles and cousins and extended aunts and uncles and cousins. And over the course of the pandemic, many of these people were elderly and have died and their houses have sold and people from Ontario, mostly several people from Ontario have bought different houses and, and moved in. And so I was actually going over to mom and dad's to run an errand the other day. And 
I was looking at these houses and thinking, wow, it's just such a different, it's still community. And my dad is still going over and helping people mow their lawns and show them, you know, <laughs> where things are and whatever. But it's just, it's just a different sense than it was when you're related to those people and kind of you're growing up in that. Um, so yeah, it's just time changes things, I guess. Okay, before we go any further, I thought I'd get Sherry to explain what the show is actually about for those who may not have watched it. Okay, so the premise of the show is that Jessica Fletcher is in Cabot Cove, Maine. She was a high school English teacher and retired. Her husband passed away, and so she needed something to do to occupy her mind. So she wasn't so sad about her beloved Frank having died. So she wrote this book, which her, this is all in the pilot, which is two episodes. Her, um, I don't even know how to describe him. Her nephew, Grady, is a bit, <laughs> he's, um, he has the best intentions. And he took her manuscript. He happened to work for a publishing company at the time. I think he has many different jobs over the course of the show. Um, and so he goes ahead and has it published. And then there's this kind of sequence in the pilot where you see that at the local bookstore, the um, seller is putting out, oh, now number five on the bestseller list. Now number three. No, now number one. <laughs> so she becomes this really successful murder mystery author. And so rather than being exclusively in Cabot Cove, she's traveling all over the world to speak at writers' conferences and to attend galas and all kinds of everything you can possibly imagine. There are tricks written into the show to make it easier for Jessica to talk to other people. Like the fact that she doesn't have a driver's license, so she is constantly being driven around, making perfect opportunities to ask people questions. She doesn't have children. That would require a longer list of fixed characters. So instead, she has an extensive extended family who live far and wide. These are characters we can trust because they're family, but characters that can come and go easily and then she returns to Cabot Cove, where friends come and go through the back door, just like friends do in small towns, before they had smartphones, before they texted instead. Sherry tells me in the early episodes, Jessica Fletcher was frumpier, more of a Miss Marple character. But then Angela Lansbury started weighing in on things. She wanted Jessica to be more worldly and more stylish, competent. You can see it in her silk blouses, her Ann Tyler round glasses, her cashmere camel coats, always with a smart handbag hanging off her shoulder. She reminds me of my gran. My sister Sally said that watching Murder, She Wrote was like watching gran solve mysteries. I wrote in my newsletter that before dementia set in, long after my grandfather died and my dad and his siblings had moved out, Gran would spend her evenings in the little study just off the kitchen, reading by the fire. Canadian greats like Ernest Buckler and Hugh McClellan were on her shelves, and later, Margaret Lawrence, Alice Monroe, and David Adams Richards. Her collection says she craved darkness in her comfort, and if Richards' novels were any judge, she didn't mind a violent death either. Once a week, she put her books down for murder, she wrote. Despite the name, the show was gentle. I'll never know why she loved it so much. Gran died in 1994 during season 11. Perhaps it was Jessica's wardrobe. Always appropriate, always tidy. Maybe it was because they both lived on quiet streets and quiet towns. Grandfather clocks kept the beat in their lives. They tied their trench coats tightly at the waist and they were curious, and they had the same haircut, 
and they both loved a good plot twist. Gran and I watched a few episodes together after she moved in with us. She couldn't follow the plot at that point in her illness, but she sat there, hands on her knees and eyes bright with the awareness that Jessica Fletcher was someone familiar. Jessica's kitchen is much more cluttered than my Gran's kitchen. Gran had cupboards painted white and a big, wide porcelain sink in front of the window. She wasn't a big cook. She made three warm meals a day for her family, but was happiest painting, gardening, and reading by the fire. Jessica was a baker. There was a white and red good housekeeping cookbook always on the kitchen shelf, and she made pies. There was always a piece for whoever came through the back door. And note that that cookbook wasn't a Betty Crocker cookbook on the shelf. There were no implications that she was meant to pass down recipes to her children. She cooked for herself and her community when she wasn't writing or solving mysteries. This woman did what she wanted. I love the kitchen so much because it really is so much like kitchens that I would visit when I was growing up. So there's this beautiful um, stove. It's like one of the antique cast iron kind of stoves. She's got her glass canning jars on top. Um, there's a tiled countertop. What a nightmare to keep clean that would be. And then as the seasons change, like subtle things change in the set of her kitchen, like the things on the wall. There's also a little wood stove in the corner of her kitchen. And then of course the avocado phone. Um, but in some seasons, yeah, you'll see there's this, in one season, I've been looking for these for years. I've never found them. There's these sweet little, um, milk glass sugar and creamer set that sits in the middle of the table. It's beautiful, but it's just this, and there's lace curtains and there's stuff all over the walls. Like it is just full, full, full. And those things change too. The things that are kind of behind when you're looking at the table. So it's fun to see as those those prints and decorations and stuff change. She has one of those, I can't remember which seasons it's in, but there's one of those barometric pressure things where the water, you know, yeah, it's like, oh yeah, that's, <laughs> they got that right on the nose. <laughs> oh, but it's just such a cozy place. I can see Sherry on my laptop as we chat. Behind her, hanging on the wall, is a really beautiful piece of art, an etching. But the glass covering it is reflecting the morning light. I can't quite make it out. She tells me it's by an artist who lives nearby named Cecil Day. It's an etching of cinnamon ferns. I've spotted them before, growing along the side of the road where my parents live. In the winter, they turn into a rich cinnamon color and their long leaves furl into themselves like tall, dark feathers standing in the snow. I asked Sherry to describe the land around her for me. It's been a long time since I've been to that part of the province. I imagine the town, with its grand and colorful old wooden homes built in Gothic revival style, and then the craggy coastline dotted with fishing boats and the wild Atlantic Ocean, and from a bird's eye view, the land that looks like delicate lace with waterways and lakes weaving through the green. And like the etching of the cinnamon fern, Sherry zooms in tight and describes the land immediately around her. Oh, there's so much. This, so this morning, my husband and kids are away for the weekend. So I have my time to myself, which is a joy and a delight. Um, so I actually slept out at our camp. We have a camp at the back of our property on a lake. 
it was very cold last night and I did not manage the fire well, but other than that, it was a great time. It was beautiful. So within a couple kilometers, the ocean is I'm pointing back that way. So there's our house, the fields, the lake, some more fields, and then there's the ocean, which has its own very specific, wild, intense beauty. The woods have their own quiet, more hushed, dark, rich, gorgeous, luscious beauty, which smells incredible at this time of year as all the leaves are dying, everything's are falling and everything's kind of rotting. That sweet smell of the woods in fall is just so incredible. There's the beauty of lakes. So last night I was looking up at the moon and it was just this gorgeous orange fingernail and it was just hanging right over the lake and it was calm and reflected in the surface of the water and it was just amazing. And I had this fire and then the sparks are going up in the air. Like it's just, uh, it's almost too much sometimes when you're really paying attention. Like it's just so much. And so then this morning there had been a hard frost last night and we have a pond and there's kind of a lower part of our, at the bottom of our field, there's this kind of dip. And so everything was covered in frost. It was just sparkling and amazing. And the sun was shining through it all. But it's just, it's so intense sometimes when you're paying attention. Like the sun was so bright and it's reflecting off all these little beautiful ice crystals. And the frost is crunching under your feet and there's the smells and the, the sun is warming you up. And it's just such a sensory, like it's a full sensory experience. And at a certain point, I was just about back to the house. I was like, okay, it's so much. <laughs> I got to take a break. It's too amazing. Not many people would pack up for the night and hike to a cabin by the lake alone, build a fire, feed themselves, and feed the fire at the end of a work week. But it lights her up. It's what she loves. And now it's what I want to do, too. It also explains why Sherry is happy to watch hours of murder she wrote on a laptop while making soap. She needs balance in her life, external and internal comforts, the wild and the soothing. We all do. Sherry is wearing a gaming headset for this conversation. It's a juxtaposition. This woman who blogs about the natural world around her and loves a television show set in a time before cell phones. Anyway, before we say goodbye, I tell her about that podcast episode I had been listening to with Glennon Doyle and Celesting. How does Sherry navigate those who might poke fun at the more wholesome things in life? She shrugs in her headset and says, Go find the thing that you love. Go find your own murder she wrote and your, <laughs> your own quince jelly and, and whatever. These just happen to be the things that I love to spend my time doing. So... Um, it's funny actually, because my oldest son is 15 and where I love all these homey, cozy, lovely things. He loves this video game. It's called dead by daylight. And you're like, it's all anyway, he's at Halcon this weekend. Halcon for those who don't know is a big sci-fi and fantasy costume convention that takes place annually in Halifax. And he's dressed as this killer and it's so far from anything that I would ever be interested in in a million years. And he loves it as much as I love Murder, She Wrote. He's deep in the lore. He's like, he just loves it. And so I'm like, okay, he found his Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> it's just a little, a little rougher than mine. Sherry has a long list of things she wants to do before her family descends upon her. Maybe a fast walk. She might bake. She might do some yoga. Or make some soap because the family's all out. So many things. And I might just sit back and 
watch a few episodes of Murder, She Wrote. Thank you, Sherry Graham, for leaning into what you love and owning it. You can find Sherry on Instagram at Graham Sherry, G-R-A-H-A-M-S-H-E-R-R-I-E. And thanks to Angela Lansbury. Incidentally, have you ever seen Angela Lansbury in Gaslight, the 1944 psychological thriller? She's so good, so dark, so complex. And thanks to Mary Pratt for using the word erotic to describe jelly. Why not? This series is edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme song is Jen Grant's One More Night. Please rate and review The Food Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And you can sign up for that newsletter I was talking about earlier over at lindsaycameronwilson.substack.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. 